If you're not already a Patreon subscriber, go to Patreon and look for The Theology Pit or go to TheologyPit.com and just find the link to Patreon. This month, the month of October 2020, you will get this entire two-hour interview for just a buck. Just a dollar. I mean, just that's it. That's it. Less than a cup of coffee. And you get the uncut two-hour interview with the Reverend Dr. Don Collett. Hi, this is John Hall. And this is Kathy Emmons. And we're from 101.5 Ward FM. And you've just fallen into the Theology Theology Pit. Welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh and not to be confused with a bottomless pit because you know what we say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm your friendly neighborhood host, podcaster, seminarian. Oh, there's no longer seminarian. No, I'm just a pastor and a theologian. Samson Kovach coming back to you again with another edition of The Theology Pit. And today's going to be a special one because I know I get a lot of letters from you guys and you're just like, Sam, I really wish that you would have someone on the show that would put you in your place. All right, well, I decided to do that today. I have have the uh, Reverend Doctor Any uh, Don Call it any more uh, titles that I need to put uh, on there? No, that's quite sufficient. Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> I, I didn't know if you've reached like canon stature no, yet no. or whatever. And, and no. you're 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 a, a uh, an Anglican priest, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and a doctorate and the um, uh, what o- Old Testament professor extraordinaire at uh, Trinity School for Ministry. Well, after a manner of speaking, yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> and you know what? I, I, I do have kind of a confession to make to you. And I wanted yeah. to do it on the air here. Yes. You are part of the reason I wanted to go to Trinity. Oh, really? And I never got to take a class with you. Yeah, that's odd. I must have been on sabbatical about the time you were you, going through. You Well, you were one time and then like you, you came back, but it's just my schedule didn't fall yeah. like, like properly with it. But um. Uh, Trinity has a be a seminarian for a day. And I yeah. sat in your class. Um, I think it was an STM class on, um, uh, it, it was on a theological interpretation. Oh, that's right. And you were looking at, I think it was Psalm eight and Martin Luther's understanding oh, of it. Right. Yeah. And we were, yeah. And we were going through that and, I, I just loved it. I felt like home. I was like, I am loving this discussion. And you were nice enough to then like email me like all the stuff that you had oh. prepared that day. And I really appreciated that and read through it. And I told my wife, I said, I think Trinity is the right place. Oh, that's like, great. I, I, I did so not know that. I, I didn't think that you did. <laughs> oh, let so. the administration know that, would you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, you, you deserve a raise. Yes, you know, I for, do. <laughs> for, for bringing people in here and everything. But, um, but you, you've put out a book here, Figural Reading and the Old Testament, Theology and Practice. Holding it in my hand, I read through yeah. it. I really liked it. I like the fact that you called it figural reading instead of just, you know, like um, uh, dirty allegories and how we destroy scripture <laughs> through interpretation. Right. I thought that this is a better title. <laughs> And so <laughs> kind of the, the first question I have for you is just, you know, why do you hate pastors so much that you want to mess up the way they've been interpreting scripture here in America for hundreds of years, you know, to the yeah. point where we, we have the historical grammatical literary hermeneutic down. We don't need any deeper stuff to get us in trouble. Well, like, that, yeah, that's a good place to start. Uh, putting it the way you do is is rather provocative, but it's also helpful because I, I'm concerned about the loss of Christological preaching in the pulpits, uh, not just in the context of seminary instruction, but in the churches. I think that there's an attenuated, kind of really emaciated view of the of 
the words of Scripture, which a more technical term would just be the literal sense, and that this is connected with the loss of a figural consciousness. And so I, what I wanted to do in the book was try and show folks who are invested in this grammatical, historical, or call it literal historical approach to Scripture, that that's not antithetical to figural reading. Figural reading is not a non-historical mode of reading Scripture, and co- contrary to how it's popularly portrayed by many. Mm-hmm. So, but you know that it, it's definitely the case that when you take the words of Scripture and you fundamentally understand them as talking about original authorial intention and original historical context, it becomes difficult after that to figure out how you're going to fit Christ in there. It's almost like a pin the tail on the donkey move. And most uh, preachers that I listen to don't ever really get to that. Some do, but it's always kind of an awkward uh, transition for them. You know, they've been unpacking the history and trying to tell you what this text means in its context, and then now how are we going to get to Christ from here? Especially, that problem is especially, especially acute in the Old Testament for most uh, readers and thinkers. You know, it's in the Gospels, since they're talking about Jesus, it's, it's hard to avoid uh, talking on some level about Christ. Yeah. yeah, one of the things that you said in your book that I thought was a, a good thing to point out was um, people think when they think um, like allegory or figural, yeah, right. they think that, well, that means that I can just make the Bible say whatever I want. Right. And yeah. it's not that it can mean just anything that you want. It could mean certain things within the context. So it doesn't necessarily just have one wooden literal meaning and that's it. Yeah. But that, that that can actually push towards the um, – we, I guess we could think of like the, the uh, apocalyptic revelation of what yeah. is truly going on behind the scenes that we're not seeing like within our history. And this is exposing us to what is. Right. That – As I take it, there are many different ways to define allegory, and this is part of the problem in talking about allegory, is people have certain assumptions about what it means. You've already mentioned one, that it's arbitrary, it's speculative, it it has no real integral connection with the words of Scripture, but it's something a person adds on in order to make, in the case of the Old Testament, to make it speak of Christ. Uh, I, you know, that... If you'll run across that view, for instance, in N.T. Wright's otherwise helpful book, um, Scripture and the Authority of God, he basically says allegory is something that the church used to make the Old Testament speak about Christ. Uh, There's this idea that allegory is imposing categories on the Old Testament that it doesn't really support. Uh, So I define allegory essentially, uh, I I know there's other ways to define it, but I'm trying to make the case that in the tradition of the patristics, even even down into the early pre-modern or late pre-modern period, that allegory is essentially the theological or spiritual sense of scripture. It's just what the Bible is talking about when it proclaims to us in words uh, the revelation that God gives. So I, nobody would disagree that the Bible has a theological sense. What I think they often miss is that the early church used the doctrinal, the theological, and the allegorical sense all as more or less interchangeable. And you couldn't make a doctrine or an allegory unless you could show that it was rooted in the literal sense of the Scripture. Now, the church has always had times when those things threatened to come apart Mm -hmm. and reform movements got set in the reformation wasn't the first i tried to discuss how 13th century scholasticism also 
try to to uh, tighten up the relation between the literal and the uh, theological sense, or call it the allegorical. Yeah, here um, in your book on page 30, you, you talk about the roots being with the uh, Greco-Roman rhetorical tradition and scripture itself. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And, but here's, here's what I see. Um, is it problematic to look at the Greco-Roman culture for interpretive principles or even as uh, coming alongside interpretive principles to to then validate sure. that this is the way you're doing it because technically any culture could do that. And sure. I know um, Ian Wallace in his book, um, The Faith of Christ in the Early uh, Church Fathers, uh, he, he spends the first chapter kind of deconstructing that and saying, right. look, we, we shouldn't be using um, the like Greco-Roman or Platonic ideas of, yeah. of you know what what we think reality is in order to understand you know these yeah. these interpretive principles and it even sort of comes out in um, um, Alistair Begg's I, I believe it is his, his book Ustia Day right yeah. in the beginning when he's talking about justification and he's he's like we really don't know what this means and it seems like by by sticking with this uh, almost uh, a stoic understanding we're we're imposing a certain yeah, sure. allegorical methodology, even though we're, we're we're trying to see what God is is saying to us, but it's 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 almost like we're using it as a back door and then saying, oh yeah, and scripture too. Oh yeah, you know yeah, what I no. mean? Yeah. Well, Paul does use allegoria in um, Galatians four, mm-hmm. and of course, you don't see that term showing up much elsewhere in scripture. In fact, I'm not aware of any other place in scripture. The word tupas shows up in First Corinthians ten. And I make the case in the book that I don't see a radical distinction between those two modes of of speaking about God. But uh, you're right. If we always have to ask, where's the pressure coming from to read Scripture this way? Is it coming from a rhetorical tradition outside Scripture or a tradition of Greek philosophy, or is it coming? Is it being pressured by the Scripture itself? There's always a danger there that you're going to be letting external pressures govern what you're doing at the same time the balance in that is in realizing that when the writers of scripture sat down to write scripture (laughs) uh, they would have used the linguistic conventions and modes of writing that were common to their day because they're speaking to a particular people and in order to do that they need to adopt certain conventions that are accepted just as we're doing now we have we're already working with certain linguistic and yeah, speech yeah. conventions. Yeah, and our pronunciation is screwed yeah. up because of the French. So. <laughs> well, thank you very thank much. You. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's true. Uh, I always thought the Germans did more for us in that respect because uh, after I learned German, I never could pronounce English words correctly. Yeah, well, well German was positive, but once you get to, what was it, 11th, 12th century, and the yeah. French, you know, screwed up with the, Sa- the way the Saxons pronounced things, and, you know. Yeah, yeah. that's it's it's a complicated issue. Yeah. That's why I, we don't eat cow, we eat beef. <laughs> I did yeah. not know that. Well, yeah. you learn something when you come on this podcast. <laughs> I, I was told that would happen. Uh, yeah, there's a. I think there's a. There's always been a tension. I'm not among those who think that just because the fathers make use of Greek terms drawn from rhetorical traditions, that automatically, you know we should be suspicious. We really need to ask how the terms are being used. Mm -hmm. And I try to define, in the case of allegory, you can't always break words down into their component parts. That's something called the etymological fallacy. But in this case, 
Alas and Agaruain basically mean other speaking, and mm-hmm. that's generally recognized what allegory does. It discloses something, someone in, in this case, other than Scripture, who is residing in the words of Scripture through the you know what we would call inspiration. So I think if you have the term properly understood, you're not going to run into danger of of putting it, making it hostage to um, hostage to uh, external rhetorical traditions. Yeah. Do you think that um, maybe it'd be better to kind of look at it rather than either or is it both and that God's word is malleable enough that you know whatever culture comes in then they would the way that they're interpreting it the way that they're looking at it they would be able to see the centrality of, of Christ of redemption of you know everything that scripture teaches yeah yeah i i i think it's true i i think you know going back to what i thought was an, an early concern kind of being raised in the question you had is there is a real uh, you know danger of of letting these other things outside scripture pressure your reading of it so you've always got to be careful to go back to scripture and say where what's what's motivating this reading is it the words of the text itself mm-hmm. or and you know and the theological truths those words disclose or is it something else a, a recent example a book that's very helpful is uh, the birth of the trinity by matthew bates i i like the book and i like the way he handles um psalm 110 and others but sometimes I get the pre- the impression that Augustine read, say, the Psalm 110 the way he did, or any other early church father, because he was using these rhetorical conventions. Mm-hmm. It's not always clear to me. He calls it prosopological exegesis. It's not always clear to me, you know, the literal sense is really pressuring this. I find Christine Helmer's treatment of of Psalm 110 a little more helpful. She's really just working with Luther at that point. But that speaks to your concern is that you yeah. you always need to be careful. Well, here um, on this show, um, to us, we don't put a lot of stock in St. Augustine because of how indifferent he was to pears. <laughs> so what do you say, Augustine? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, so if he, um, no, if he would just come down on pears, whether he oh. liked him or not, we'd be fine. Oh, okay. But if you ever read the confessions, come on, man. It's like, you know, figure it out. Like, stealing you like pears for or not? Stealing sake. Uh, yeah. this, if I remember right, the pears example was he stole some pears just for the sake of stealing, yeah. not because he needed they to eat. They weren't even particularly good he's, yeah, they, yeah he, was, right. he was totally indifferent an entire chapter on his indifference to pairs it's like yeah thanks thanks yeah. buddy i augustine for me is um you know his word and thing hermeneutic is i think misunderstood um you know there's there's quite a bit of you know if you take a look at a at a book like the the powerlessness of external signs in Augustine. That's a little bit of a paraphrase of Phil Carey's treatment of Augustine. I don't I don't quite see Augustine arguing that. I think that puts him too close to Platonism. Yeah. And that he has an idea that signs are efficacious because of the theological reality they're related to, they're in they're in union with. Mm-hmm. And so he but you know, word and thing still strikes me as something that might, or or word and reality, or you could you could state it as language and reality. Um, it still strikes me as something that has potential for uh, a, a basic hermeneutic. Um, it's just a matter of getting clear on what you mean by the terms. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's let's. 
get off um, Augustine here, who clearly had mommy <laughs> issues, as we know. Yeah. And, <laughs> and let's, let's, <laughs> All right. Let's move over to your your book here on this on this um, on this topic. The Theology Pit is a partner-funded ministry. Please consider partnering with us by making a donation at thetheologypit.com. Just scroll to the bottom of the page, hit the donate button, and make a contribution to the best Theology Pit podcast on the internet. Now let's get back to the show. Because uh, you talk about the uh, verbum and the rest. Yeah. So the the word and thing. And one of the questions that kind of came up with me um, and I, know I do want to talk about this a little bit in just understanding the inspiration of Scripture, whether it's obsissima verba or obsissima vox. But um, yeah. moving into that, whenever whenever we're talking about this, are we thinking we're not we're not thinking uh, for word, we're not thinking graphia, correct? We're not thinking writing, and we're not thinking logos. Are we thinking more rhema, which would have the connotation of both? Like word and thing, like how well, are we? Werbum would be a broadly used term for biblical language in all the forms it takes through Scripture's formation history. So there could be it could refer to inspired oral speech, okay, that then is either written down right away or uh, later on. Um, it you know it's it refers to it also encloses graphe, okay. Yeah, I'm using it as a broad umbrella term. Okay. okay. And, uh, you know, biblical language and the reality that biblical language is speaking of, which I take to be primarily the triune God who speaks in Christ by the Spirit. So, um, you know, it, it this happens in a historical context, of course, but uh, it, it primarily that little formula kind of encapsulates the church's uh, shorthand for the the relation of biblical language to the theological reality it speaks of yeah, and page, mediates. Page 54, you write, um, this means that our approach to reading Scripture must be congruent with the theological nature of its subject matter and the purpose for which it was given. Right. Yeah. Right. I, mm-hmm. That's a big problem with a lot of historical method today. I try to make the case that the problem isn't so much with the historical methods, it's how they're used. Mm-hmm. Uh, method doesn't precede God. It follows God. Or to put it differently, method doesn't precede Scripture. It follows Scripture because your method... Uh, doesn't establish who God is. It, it It's helpful in explicating mm-hmm. his revelation of himself in Scripture. And also that you can't use a, 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 a flatly historical method, a purely historical method, uh, to get at uh, theological subject matter. You, you need to be open to the interface between theology and history if you're going to understand the Bible because it's a book about God. It's a theological uh, witness. Mm-hmm. So, you know, historical method can help you, but uh, it's not going to be, you know, you have to have theological exegesis and not just historical exegesis if your approach to scripture, interpreting scripture is going to be congruent with what it's talking about. That's what I'm saying okay. there. Yeah, because I've said before that it, it seems that most people through interpretation, um, I- including a lot of uh, scholars, they don't have a historical grammatical literary hermeneutic. They have a reformed historical yeah. literary hermeneutic. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's <laughs> it's just that that's how far back it goes. It hits the Reformation and it stops. Well, what did the yeah. reformers say? How did they understand it? That's where yeah. we take everything from. Um, the 
concept of Semper Reformanda is yeah. only there in name only, pretty much. Right. Um, nobody actually wants to go through it. I mean, what do you need to know about something? I have Calvin's Institutes right over there. Like, yeah. you know, I can, I can tell you what you need to know. <laughs> I mean, that seems to be the, you know, the default. That is a, uh, well, you know, as you probably know, if you know my background, I did come from the Reformed tradition. After an eight-year stint as a Reformed Baptist, I, I went into the no, Presbyterian. You, you, were, you, were, you were predestined to be Anglican. <laughs> oh, you're come right. On, well, yeah. You're sitting I'm, in a Presbyterian I, church. You I've, can't. I've, I've moved up to the, uh, what, what, the chain of being or you up just, the candle? What, no, what, you just what, grew up. I, oh, all right. <laughs> I, you make a very good point, though. Um, the Reformation wants to ensure the power of scripture to critique tradition. And so they're worried about this idea that the magisterium gives a normative interpretation of script of scripture, because then there's no power to critique it. If it's normative, mm-hmm. how, Finch, is that, how is that different from the Roman Catholic? It, it's you know, not, you know, it, but then when, when the, when you get confessionalism going and then a strange dynamic starts to come about where the power of scripture to critique the Westminster Confession, or to critique any other confession, kind of evaporates or gets weakened, mm-hmm. and so they fall in. They they by holding up, you know, if you want to know what what to, uh, you know, if you want to know what to say on this or that issue, you just get out Calvin's Institutes, mm-hmm. or you look at what the Westminster Confession says. I think those are good places to learn some things. Well, of course, but because <laughs> the Westminster Confession is a um, a, a better. Uh, articulation than the 39 articles that's why it was created yeah it was it was so, meant to codify and reform some loopholes in the 39 cor- articles correct and yeah. you gave that all up well <laughs> you might notice one place in the book though where i where i cite the westminster confession chapter 3 section 1 which i still regard as the i don't think anybody's ever improved on that statement in terms of relating god's sovereignty to human agency. Mm-hmm. To me, that's still the best one because every objection I've ever heard uh, is answered in those short words. It, it doesn't remove the liberty of secondary causes. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do violence to the will. On the contrary, it establishes these freedoms. Now that strikes me, you just can't say it any better than that. Yep. I, I, do, I get so tired of hearing that, you know, if you believe in a full orb doctrine of God's sovereignty, you're a determinist. No, you're not. But, you know, the Westminster Confession, chapter 3, verse section 1 is to me, I, that, that's one area you're not going to find that statement in the 39 articles. Cool. I'm going to make that my ringtone. Uh, <laughs> Great. <laughs> but uh, no, that's one of the reasons why I'm joining uh, ECO, which is the Evangelical Covenant Order of Presbyterians, yeah. is because um, when they were talking to me, you know, I asked, I said, well, why should I even bother you know, with you guys? The first thing they told me was the Westminster Confession is not the Bible. Well, and I was like, that's a big statement from a from a presbytery. I mean, it's, yeah. it may sound weird, but like I, I've, I've looked at other presbyteries and they might hint at that or say mm-hmm. that. But you always have in any any thing I've ever studied with them, Scripture and Westminster Confession right next to each other, because the Westminster Confession, uh, like Tulip, yeah. is the gospel. Yeah, there is there is a danger there, just like we talked about earlier, rhetorical traditions replacing the words of Scripture mm-hmm. as the governing pressure for how we interpret Scripture. Similarly, in this case, 
uh, confessional tradition can come to have the power of Scripture itself. So the whole Reformation concern to make sure that Scripture has the power to critique tradition and reform it gets lost, yeah. and a new form of sort of, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to use this word disrespectfully, but since the Reformation uses it, it's one of their big worries is papalism. Oh, you yeah. know? The infallibility of the magisterium. Well, you know, it always turned out when I was in the Reformed tradition that, you know, you could critique the Westminster Confession, but it, it, it in the end, it ended up being the confession was always right. Mm. Um, I do think it's a good confession, and in case my Reformed friends are listening to this, <laughs> I am not uh, by any means saying it's not a good confession, but it's a confession. Yeah, you're saying it's a paper pope. We heard you it, loud. Yeah, yeah, it, it, well, it, it can become that. Yes, it can. And this is, uh, there was a controversy on justification when I was in, which the, the Presbyterian denomination I was in loved to argue about this one. And one person had argued that, you know, everything was settled on justification in the, you know, 16th and 17th century. And I just found, even though I, I, I have no reason to disagree that we're justified by imputed righteousness, that discussion didn't have in view the eschatological aspect of justification, which a lot of people are interested in now, you know, all the way from Ritter Boss to N.T. Wright and others. And so, it's it's folly to say that kind of thing because there are new issues coming up and and we need to understand what that means for justification, what it doesn't mean for justification, and work with this rather than being locked in in the 17th century. People need to read more Barton Torrance. Yeah, they do. That's, I, that's, I, I, mean, I think they're helpful in many ways. I um, do too. I love Tom Torrance. Like he's my spirit animal. Oh, really? Like I, just, I, I, <laughs> I didn't know him. you had one. I, I read him and I'm like, Dude, this it, guy just gets it. It's good to like, know you have good. one. Yeah, 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 I didn't know you had a spirit animal. Yeah, T.F. Uh, Torrance. Good Scottish Presbyterian there. Yeah, he did a lot in Scotland to in the early years of the reception of Bart to kind yep. of break uh, people out of this hardened confessional mode that was the kind of attitude we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. um, now, there's a great Bart tradition that extends from him here, and you know that you've got people like Hunsinger and and uh, John Webster and Paul Molnar and others, and I think they're they've built and extended, but he's really a pivotal figure in in bringing Bart into yeah. uh, the larger discussion. I, I know many Scottish confessional Calvinists hated him for it. <laughs> so let's um, let's let's kind of look into the realm since what we were talking about with this like magisterial authority. Yeah. If we sort of promulgate this um, allegorical, we'll just say figural, okay, like right. looking at at, at scripture, um, isn't there a danger to that being elevated? Yeah. Just as much because, in in a way. It's, it's not so much where the checks and balances, but who gets to say what the checks and balances are. Sure. Yeah, who gets to say. Uh, I think that, of course, Scripture needs to be interpreted and confessions need to be made. But where I would resist, I, I would resist the idea that there's a body of people that make a normative interpretation, you know, that, that nobody else can really uh, challenge from Scripture Shall we call that the priesthood of every believer, or shall we call it the right of the teaching office to critique other teachers? Well, I'll leave that up in the air for folks to sort out. But uh, yeah, it, there is a danger that allegory or figure 
that's that's what I tried to get at in chapter two was the church following the lead of Reverend Childs on that discussion. The church has always struggled to keep these two worlds together and to unite the literal sense with the theological sense and to keep those worlds from coming apart or from one, the tail wagging the dog, you mm -hmm. know, allegory imposing itself on the literal sense. Uh, that, and I don't think that's going to stop, and it hasn't stopped. Uh, but I do think that it's worthwhile trying to, to enter into that struggle, you know, and certainly letting allegory or figural sense or the theological interpretation of Scripture, which is really what figural sense is concerned with, um, you know, letting that take on a life of its own, uh, let alone, you know, something that comes into the hands only of a, of a special enlightened magisterium that can tell you what it means, uh, you know, that would, that would then weaken its relation to Scripture and would be something to avoid. Thank you for listening to The Theology Pit. Please take a moment to rate our podcast and leave a comment about what you like or what you don't like. Each rating and comment helps others discover this show. Don't forget to visit us at thetheologypit.com to make a donation. While on the website, we would appreciate it if you would share these podcasts with your friends and family on social media. Our Facebook page is also titled The Theology Pit. Stop over and give us a like. If you have any questions or topics you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, please write to samson at thetheologypit.com. That's samson, spelled S-A-M-S-O-N, at thetheologypit.com. Now, here's a preview of next week's show. People that converted maybe from an evangelical background and became Catholic, like Scott Hahn, Scott Hahn or also Matt Levering, meant, you know, he, he had a... Scott Hahn's local boy here, Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. true, yeah. <laughs> I, I, this is common for them to say. You know, the Reformation was born in nominalism. This sola scriptura radicalism yeah. is an anti-metaphysical... In fact, Matt Levering writes a book called Scripture and Metaphysics, even though it's dealing with people like Bauckham and, and N.T. Wright and others. This is a this is a big burden of the book. Is that here you here you have it again, you know, that there's just this anti-metaphysical bent. And that's been part of the Roman. This Catholic and more on the next theology pit. Yeah.